Rebel Force Radio. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Prepare to make the jump to light speed. Light speed. Traveling through hyperspacing like dust and crops, boy. A collection of bits, comedy, and favorite moments. Stop that ship! Blast them! So strap yourselves in and prepare for the jump to light speed. George Lucas was seen out and about at the Hip Hop Summit Action Network. We had microphones at the Hip Hop Summit Action Network Awards Dinner. Here it is, George at the Hip Hop Awards. Yo, yo, yo. This is the Notorious GL. What up, dogs? Word. I'm back from the ranch, lightsaber in my pocket, jump into my X-Wing, take off like a rocket, a ton in the bank, melody on my arm, Death Star's approaching, so raise the alarm. Fighting with the critics over Howard the Duck, I read their reviews, I said, what the f***? I hip and I hop with Jar Jar and Mace, Greedo shot first, so in yo face. I hope someday I win a hip-hop award. I like to play with my laser sword. I'm taking off. I think we're set to get some gin and juice with Boba Fett. Punch it. So wizard. GL. Out. Rebel Force Radio. Star Wars is something to enjoy. Uh, and to take away what you can from it that maybe helps you in your lives, but don't let it take over your lives. I mean, that's what they all say about Trekkies, and I know Star Wars fans don't do that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The point of the movie is to get on with your lives, uh, to take that challenge, to leave your uncle's moisture farm, to go out into the world and change it and save the universe. I'm your source for the Force. Hey, Star Wars fans, Jimmy Mack here with you, and I'm sitting in the lobby of the Four Seasons Hotel in downtown Chicago for what promises to be an incredible night. George Lucas is in town. That's right, George Lucas, a writer, director, and creator of Star Wars. And the Gene Siskel Film Center of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago is honoring George tonight, who will take part in a Q&A hosted by John Favreau. John Favreau, welcome to Chicago. Hi. Must be a huge honor. Welcome back, Jimmy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Must be a huge honor for you to be here tonight sure. hosting this evening for George. Yes, it was uh, not not a... It was one that, that when, when the request came uh, through the office, they said... Usually you pass on this type of stuff because I'm right in the middle of directing Iron Man. That's right, yeah. But then they said, it's George Lucas, and he's getting the Gene Siskel Award in Chicago. Yeah. And I said, I'll, f- I'll find the energy. Just, <laughs> just put it on the books. And, and here I am now, right in the middle of shooting. It so. must be the rarest of occasions to get you off the set to come It is. And, honor then, and then also, the even if it was uh, in my basement, I'd be intimidated because yeah. here I am. I have to speak one-on-one with George for whatever it is, 45 minutes, yeah. and do an overview of his career. And this is an important night for him. And the fact that he even thought to... To ask me was a huge honor. Does it surprise you that he's such a big fan of your work? Yeah, I didn't really know that I was on his radar. Yeah. I talked to him at Carrie Fisher's birthday uh-huh. party once. Uh, I mixed uh, Iron Man up at the ranch. Oh, yeah, right. Talked to him for a few minutes there. Uh-huh. 
but never really, you know, I always felt like I was, uh, I didn't want to take too much of his time. Mm-hmm. And I usually just would gush. So it wasn't a very interesting conversation. I know I don't like being on the other end of that type of conversation, uh-huh. so I know when to step away. Well, well I'll try to contain myself. But, uh, <laughs> but I know that, you know, what's cool is now I get to sit with him for 45 minutes yeah. and I'm supposed to talk to him. Right, right. So I don't feel like I'm uh, imposing. So I'll, I'll be asking a lot of things I want to know. You know, he's an icon. He's really an icon. Certainly, it's, it's so different. It's hard to explain to people. Lucas and Spielberg are in a very different category among filmmakers because you can't really fully appreciate what they do unless you're forced to walk in their shoes and understand what both they both bring a different side of the coin to the table. But Lucas, with the innovations, I mean, we wouldn't have the Avid without him. We wouldn't have CGI without him. We wouldn't have morphing. Uh, we wouldn't have CGI characters. You wouldn't have even what they did uh, before motion control the, the cameras that they developed for Star Wars I mean this is stuff that really I can't think of much that he didn't have a hand in and then and then then you know you look at Pixar that was an offshoot of uh, right his computer division so the guy was extremely relevant and didn't took took time away from his filmmaking to to be prolific in changing the industry of, of film technically so there's a there's a tremendous wealth of uh, 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 of innovation that the guy's responsible for what's your favorite Lucas film film yeah. Lucas film yeah. I got yeah you gotta go Star, Star Wars, Wars. Mm-hmm. you gotta go Star Wars alright John take care alright here he is the man of the hour George Lucas Hi, George. Would you mind holding on to my microphone, please? Or? Holding your microphone. Yeah, just so. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah, you know, I've heard that before. I've heard that. <laughs> Zap. Uh, of course, I, you know, it's an honor to meet you. I would never uh, tase you, for sure. Tonight's an amazing night, so I want you to tell Star Wars fans everywhere how you feel being honored by the Gene Siskel Film Center. Well, it's, it's really uh, exciting. I'm a big fan of Gene Siskel, and um, this award is being uh, given not only in terms of the the uh, content, but also the fact of the, the, the innovation and technology that goes along with creating, uh, you know, stories and that sort of thing. That the two things go hand in hand. And Gene Siskel was a huge fan of Star Wars. And I'm a huge fan of Star Wars. I saw Star Wars in 1977 when I was eight years old. And it had an impact on my life. I'm a radio professional as a career, but my passion is Star Wars. And this podcast is my passion. And you set out to create a mythology that children of the times of the 70s could latch on to because we really didn't have anything. And Star Wars is something I share with my boys now. And I just want to let you know that it's multi-generational. It's more than just a mythology for kids from the 70s, but you succeeded. From one big kid, on behalf of Star Wars fans, I want you to know that we really appreciate you creating that mythology. Uh, you're welcome. Well, we're, we're definitely on our third generation now. Cause yeah. the, with Clone Wars, we have a lot of five-year-olds that mm-hmm. are completely obsessed with the whole thing. They will eventually go on and see the features. Yes. And uh, it's, it's, it's odd to... Uh, uh, you know, to, to, to watch the fans evolve. When, when we brought out the second trilogy, uh, we were getting, um, you know, the, from the older group, it was a, definitely a generational split. It was just very clear that the older people said, oh, four, five, and six are the movies. These new ones are no good. They're, don't forget about them. The younger people at that time, you know, the, the 10-year-olds, we're all saying, no, 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 no. These are the movies. The new ones are the great movies. Those old ones are kind of stodgy and old and slow and, you know, not as exciting enough. And now we have a whole different group that know 
everything about Clone Wars, and you ask them about Star Wars, and they say, I don't know about Star Wars. I haven't seen that, but I love Clone Wars. Yes. <laughs> That's great, because two of those young fans live in my house, and Friday nights are very special when we get to gather around the TV to watch the Clone Wars. Our show entered our film in the Adam Film Star Wars Fan Film Awards last year, uh-huh. and we won two awards, one for Best Animation and Fan's Choice. It was called the George Lucas Hip Hop. Did you happen to see it? Oh, yeah. Right. You did. You did. Uh, very good. I hip and I hop with Jar Jar Mace, Greedo yeah. shot first, so in your face. Ring any bells? Yeah, yeah very good. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad you saw it. Thank you. And uh, today is a friend of ours, his birthday, Ralph McQuarrie. It's his 80th birthday. And I was just wondering if you had a birthday shout-out for Ralph. Well, I tell you, happy 80th, Ralph. Uh, it's George, and uh, I hope you all the best wishes for the day. You've uh, been there right from the very start. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, George. Somebody who probably knows George better than anyone is Melody Hobson. Let's go say hi to Melody. Hi. Melody, hi. Hi. I'm Jimmy Mack. Mm-hmm. It must be a huge honor for George tonight to be yes. honored by the Gene Sisko Film Center. I mean, it's been a long road for him to get here. I mean, obviously, he's gotten a lot of awards and honors in the past. What makes tonight special for George? I think because it's Gene Sisko. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, he is such... He, his name and his influence in the film industry is really, really... Yes really well known to everyone and was so significant Mm -hmm. and he's a legend and so the idea that George could come here and receive an award um, from a center that is related to someone who did so much for film I think is very important Gene of course was a huge Star Wars fan are you a big Star Wars fan? Yes I am a big Star Wars fan Kind of a silly question I I love Star Wars I love it What's your favorite Star Wars movie? Oh, she's thinking about it. You know, it's interesting. I love them all, but I love um, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, you know, that's a popular fan's choice. Yeah. It really is. Everyone loves Empire. What about Empire appeals to you? Um, I don't know. There's something about the energy in it and the creativity. I mean, they're all, the whole world is so creative and the whole way that it's been done. But that story for me is the one that I just remember affecting me so dramatically as a kid. And is George still excited about the future of Star Wars? Oh, he loves it. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it, he's he's mad for the world. I awesome. mean, it's just something that every day he talks about and thinks about, and um, it definitely is. It's a big, big, big focus of his thoughts and you, creativity. And you guys also are friends with Barack Obama. Is Barack a Star Wars fan? I don't know. I've never asked him. You've never asked Barack Obama? I don't ever ask anyone that question. (laughs) No, I do. I ask everyone that question. But you know know what? It looks like they want you for some pictures. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Can I get one more question with you, George? The future for Star Wars certainly looks bright with the Clone Wars and the upcoming live action show. You've given us a lot to talk about. It's a very exciting time to be a Star Wars fan. What excites you about the future of Star Wars? Um, I don't know. It's just fun to do it. A really incredible moment has just happened here tonight, folks. A young child from Make-A-Wish got the chance to finally meet his hero, George Lucas. He got to spend several minutes talking to George, asking questions, getting autographs. Amazing. Let's go check in with this little kid and see what the experience was like. Uh, what's your name, buddy? My name is Blake. Blake, and you just got to meet George Lucas. How was yes. that? Oh, my God. I'm in awe. I'm awestruck. I mean, he has been my childhood hero since I was five. I'm 15 now, yeah. so that's that's 10 years. And I'm just, I'm just amazed that I get to be here today <laughs> and do this delightful event with him. Well, you got a few minutes with him. What did you ask him? I asked him um, how difficult the directing experience was. And, and what did he say? He said that the be making a movie 
is a very very difficult job. It, you have to um, you have to make sure that everybody's there and just it's just he told me he listed all these things that was just that were just conflictive with the agenda. Yeah. Where are you from, Blake? I am from, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. Okay, Fort Worth, Texas. And you, you flew up here to meet George Lucas? That's It's an amazing opportunity, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, chance of a lifetime, wasn't it? Yes. You still got the goosebumps still? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I still do. I, I think I'm going to have a seizure with all those light flashes. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot of media here today, but that's great that you got the opportunity to meet your hero because you know what? I did too. I'm George Lucas, filmmaker and beard wearer. I've pushed the boundaries of film technology. Now I'm expanding the technology of facial hair maintenance. Has this ever happened to you at the office? George, we can't hear you. Your beard's muffling your voice. (laughs) Oh, this is so embarrassing. So I decided not to look like a Wookiee anymore. It's the George Lucas Beard Grooming Kit from Lucasfilm, Hasbro, and Gillette. It's so easy to use. All you do is turn it on. Trim a little here. And here. And here. There. Good as new. Don't look like fangs are, and watch your reputation go far with the George Lucas Beard Grooming Kit. Stay away from the weird beard. The George Lucas Beard Grooming Kit is available at drugstores, theft stars, and Watto Shop. The George Lucas Beard Grooming Kit is THX approved. The galaxy is shaving. Jim, I'm just going to, I'm going to let you kind of uh, take over here. I mean... I don't really know what to say other than you <laughs> you had a total fanboy experience beyond belief in meeting the maker himself, George Lucas. Now, a lot of us have been to Celebration 3. Some of us were maybe even remember the very first Star Wars convention, the big 10th anniversary convention in 87, and George was there. So we, we might have seen George in person, but not a lot of us have actually met George. Right. And had a chance to talk to him, and I, and I, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but I, I, I think that it's important that the folks listening know that you were kind of agonizing about this, in the sense that you didn't know exactly how to come at this, whether you come at this because, as you know, as a, as the co-host and producer of the Forecast, or do you really come at this as a fan? And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, this is my could be. Maybe. Who knows? My only chance to meet George. I can't screw this up. I can't waste this opportunity. What was going through your head with this? All of that, everything. But the way I ultimately ended up approaching this thing was not as so much a reporter like everyone else who was in the media line with me. Right. And it was pretty interesting scene. I'm in there with I'm alongside guys like Bill Zwecker from the Chicago Sun-Times and Dean Richards from WGN. These guys are legendary entertainment reporters from Chicago, and they're lined up, and then there's me. And tons of cameramen. They walked George in, and it was just an incredible experience. But, yeah, the anxiety going into it was, was, was really starting to eat away at me. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to put away all that pseudo-journalistic approach and just <laughs> – reveal myself as the blubbering fanboy that I really am and thank the maker as C3PO says. 
thank the maker. And, I've never really heard anyone thank George. <laughs> so I thought, yeah. well, maybe I should just thank him. Right. And he kind of rolled with that and started laying down to me the differences between old fans and young f- fans. And I thought that was pretty cool. But it, I wasn't after the scoop. I mm. wanted to bring listeners along with me because George is not the most accessible guy in the world. You can't get to him that easily. And so I just wanted to show what it's like when a fan meets the man. Right, right. And I just want to back up here. For those that uh, might be new to the show, we've got new folks listening in every week. What we're talking about is that uh, this was in Chicago uh, two weeks ago now um, at the Gene Siskel Film Center. George Lucas was presented with a very prestigious award. Um, it was uh, what was the exact you remember the name of the award? It was visionary and visionary filmmaker or something it's like a that? really long name, <laughs> but what everyone just ended up calling it was the Gene Siskel award for innovation in filmmaking. There you go. There you go. And, uh, I mean, not only was this, you know, uh, uh, wonderful that, that Jimmy got a chance to meet George, but to meet him also in your own turf, your own hometown. So you didn't, at least you didn't have the anxiety of being in a new city and getting the lay of the land. Um, had you been out to the Cisco center before? Did you scope it out before at all? True. Actually, it wasn't at the Cisco center itself. It was at the swanky four seasons hotel in downtown Chicago in their main ballroom. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, it was, it was like going to a wedding. There were 300 people there. It was kind of set up like a wedding. You could see everyone across the room and everything. Um, but it was really cool. I mean, it was really cool. I, I think that did help me relax a little that it was in Chicago because, you know, Jason, I mean, it was Thursday night before the interview and there were f- like 48 hours left and it started to dawn on me that I was going to meet my childhood idol. <laughs> I was going to meet the man, you know, yeah. I've said it before that I kind of collect interviews like the way people go after action figures or comic books so obviously George Lucas, he's that, you know, he's that white elephant that, you, you know, the toughest interview to get. Right. So right. I called you on Thursday night because I was freaking out. I started to really think about it a lot. And I was at Michael's baseball game and I'm like, oh, OK, this is cool. I can just sit back, relax, watch the ball game, not worry about it. You know, mm-hmm. meeting George Lucas mm-hmm. and all that. And wouldn't you know it? There are like three kids out there on the field named Lucas. <laughs> so every time I try to get it out of my head, I hear a parent go, Attaboy, Lucas! Way to go, Lucas! You can do it, Lucas! I was just like, oh, jeez. So I called you, Jason, and, uh, yeah. and you know, just sort of talked about it. Dan Madsen just said, just be yourself. And yeah. I think that was the best advice anyone could give me going into this. And- I, th- I think my advice was, don't screw this up. Yeah, yeah, I got. I heard that from you and Wendy. <laughs> but uh, then the big day happens. We're backstage in the media room. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm with all these cameramen and photographers and reporters and TV crew, and they they were very strict. The Cisco Center PR was very strict, only allowing three minutes of interview time per media outlet. Who had the stopwatch? Was that Lynn Hale? No, no. Lynn was, uh, she was just off to the side watching oh, okay. everything. It was the Cisco Center PR, and they, they ran a tight ship, and it yeah. was a great show. Right. I mean, they did a fantastic job producing it. I'm not knocking those guys down for doing their jobs. Um, I did see everyone else's footage, and sure enough, it was three minutes to the button. But I was hanging out in the same room with George and Melody, and it was cool to see him walk in with Melody, too, because I've always wanted to meet her. She's, 
she's really cool. And uh, it was just cool to hang out in the same room with him for like an hour. Yeah. Just watching him, you know, the way he worked the room and the way he handled people who came up to him. And I was, I was standing right next to him for a lot of it. And I would see him and Melody kind of, you know, close talking. They're obviously very, you know, there's a lot of chemistry between those two. Yeah. And I, w- I would say they were canoodling. Oh, oh okay. I would, I would classify it. Well, as she's a Chicago people. girl, so it could be that maybe they haven't seen each other in a while, too. Yeah, so I mean that was really yeah. nice, you know, and I, I was able to observe all that and, um, and 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 listen in as he talked to a lot of other people. And a, a question that came up is, does he feel forced to continue on with these franchises like Star Wars and Indiana Jones? Hmm. Well, here's his answer. Well, it's not that I'm forced to do it. It's just that that's where you find yourself. You know, you just you go through life and things present themselves, and you take uh, accept certain opportunities and. Uh, you find yourself doing certain things that you never thought you were going to be doing. But uh, um, I have found it's easier to sort of flow with the river than it is to try to fight uh, to change uh, what is happening around you. And it's the same thing with shooting movies, which most directors understand, which is you set up a situation, you're in a particular situation. It starts to rain, or other things happen, or, you know, there's a lot of things that come and influence the movie while you're shooting. And sometimes you really have to just forget your ideas and go with what's happening. See, you know, huh. just go with the yeah, flow. Right, 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 right. Go with the flow. That's something that impressed me about George, too, is seeing just how laid back he actually is. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people paying attention to him and a yeah. lot of people hanging on every word he says. And he just goes with the flow. Right. I think right. that's something that maybe wasn't always part of his style over the yeah, years. Yeah, it does sound like, based on what he's saying, that that's, you know, yeah, something he learned. Um, and you know, we've talked on the program before about, you know, there's, there's the George right after the original trilogy that really appeared to want to leave star Wars behind. He didn't want his, his, you know, obituary or his tombstone to lead with creator of star Wars. But I think he accepted that and, uh, probably realized, well, there, there's really worse things in life. than Having created this, uh, this mythology, which is kind of points to the question that you asked in which we'll talk about a little bit later but uh, you were able to get some more of these uh question and answers here yeah as i was waiting i was just rolling tape recording everything george was saying i felt oddly calm as he worked his way down the line you know which was nice it all started to feel real natural for me mm-hmm. I'm, i i see george he's coming towards me i got him in my sights I know I'm going to talk to him now. Now, you know, a lot of the anxiety, too, was, is this actually going to happen? I'm not going to believe it until it actually happens. Right. And as he's working his way down the line, I'm sitting there saying, this is actually going to happen. This is great. So I'm (laughs) but I'm listening to him talk to other people and and receiving an award from the Cisco Center that celebrates innovation in filmmaking. Obviously, it was brought up to him about how what he considers the relationship between technology and storytelling is like. How does that go down? How does that work for George? Mm, here he goes. Well, the two things are very separate. You know, it's, it's, the, the, the pencil doesn't take away from your ability to write a good story. Um, you know, and uh, neither does a computer. You know, and, uh, uh, or, you know, a quill pen. Uh, a quill pen didn't make Shakespeare. It's what came out of his head. Uh, and I think that'll always be the way it is. It's really, it's the culture that determines the creative part of the whole thing. It's the um, technology that usually limits the creative artist to uh, 
work within certain bounds. Hmm, that's very interesting. That's mm-hmm. very interesting that it, it, he says that it's the technology that limits. And, you know, there are some that would say that George got caught up in the technology with the prequels and through right. as much tech or as much new uh, methods or ways of, of creating these worlds and characters and aliens and all of this. I'm saying some would say that I, I, I think that he was just being every bit as um, I don't know what the word is resourceful. I think that's the best word. He was being as, as resourceful as he was back in the late seventies and early eighties, but it was just a different time, different time. So if, you know, we would have had CGI back in the late seventies, early eighties, good chance that Yoda would have been all CGI Mm -hmm. then. So it works both ways. You know, there's the, it limits in terms of, uh, uh, ability to, to do certain things. And then some may say that it limits in its, in its ability to kind of, uh, um, maybe crowd out or, 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 or prevent, get in the way of, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Or, or is, is it being used as a crutch? Sure. Sure. Are you relying on the technology to tell the story? Has your thought wave moved and changed so much to where it's more the technology dictating what you're putting in, down the paper than what's actually in your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, right. but George has his playground and he developed it so he can have fun making the movies. And uh, I believe it all just comes from his imagination. I do. I do. Yeah. And I think that as George continues to learn how to use that technology, we might see some of his greatest work in the future. And speaking of the future, he talked a little bit about the future of Star Wars on television. Star Wars, the features, is really the story of Anakin Skywalker. Uh, that's the whole story. And, of course, he's dead now, so there's no place to go with it. And uh, so now we're able to, with Clone Wars and a live-action show I'm working on and another animated show I'm working on, we're able to explore different avenues of Star Wars and different, you know, much different uh, kinds of uh, milieus. Star Wars, the epic, is very constrained about the story. It's not like uh, Star Trek or or Spider-Man or any of those movies where they just can do one after the other and it does, they don't really connect onto a whole story. Star Wars was always intended really to be one story. You know, once you finish it, you finish it. Uh, television is a sequel-driven medium. You know, episodes. Each episode is basically a sequel. And uh, so you can go a long ways. That, and and it's, we can design it for a much broader palette than the, the uh, big movies. Yeah, so a, a director like George Lucas or a filmmaker or a storyteller, I think is probably the best description of him, would be, uh, I think, very naturally attracted to television because he's he's very episodic. And whether it's Indiana Jones or it's, uh, or it's Star Wars, he has this love of serialized, the serialized format. Mm-hmm. So, but the the big thing in that clip is that He's admitting that there's a second animated series in the works, mm-hmm. and the context of it implies that it's that it's Star Wars. Uh, are we going to hear any more about that later tonight, Jim, or is that is that it? He does make reference to some of the work he's doing for television in the Q and A he does with John Favreau, which we'll be hearing highlights from later on in the show. But um, no, you know, nobody was really pressing him too much on things of that nature. Um, Everyone pretty much respected him and his space. 
Um, so, and the three minute rule, <laughs> we all yeah. did respect that. The George and, Lucas three minute rule. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, talking to George was, uh, really amazing. And right after he was done talking to me, I had noticed there was a family that came in the media room and they were sitting off to the side. And, uh, and as it turns out, it was this kid named Blake Angerstein from Texas and he was there courtesy of A Wish With Wings Incorporated and Lucasfilm. And um, I reported he was from Make-A-Wish. That's because someone fed me that information and uh, you know who you are. <laughs> but uh, A Wish With Wings Incorporated is a nonprofit organization that grants the wishes of Texas children with life-threatening diseases. Uh-huh. Much like Make-A-Wish. Right, so right, if you want right. more information on that, you can visit awishwithwings.org. And it was just really nice to see then George walk over to this family and this kid's dream come true. He was 15 years old, Blake. And so now I want everyone to be witness to this meeting between George and a kid. And here's where I saw George. It, he looked more relaxed than I saw him for most of the evening. Nobody was shining a light in his face or asking him to stand in a certain way and all that stuff so they could get a good picture. It was just he was just there talking with the kid. And the kid was so enthusiastic and happy to meet George Lucas. And George knew it was this kid's dream come true. So now everyone gets to be a fly on the wall for these moments when I'm sure it's very apparent to George the power he has and and the ability he has to bring joy into someone's life, not just by buying a movie ticket, but by a face-to-face meeting with their hero. Right. So check it out. Here's where Blake Angerstein meets George Lucas. This is Blake. Hey, how are you? Good to meet you. Excellent. <laughs> Having fun in Chicago? Oh, my That you were in Norway, and that's actual snow. Is that true? Yeah, that was it. Was like seventy below zero. Yeah. Very, very cold. We were in the traps, but then we were in uh, Tunisia, and the temperature was one hundred and forty degrees. It was very, very hot. Yeah, that was brutal. Um, you know, making a film is a very tough job, physically and mentally, and um, it's kind of like playing football. Only instead of playing for two hours, you have to play all day long for about four or five months. And, uh, you know, and, and it's a team effort. Everybody has to be up for it every day. And every day somebody misses it or we have a problem, and that causes a problem that day. So that's our first. I also want this. This is 
I got this. My dad had this for a long time. This is uh-huh. a collector's edition. That is. In Pash Drive's bag. That's an old one. Oh, yes. Yeah. My, my dad got this. Do you want me to sign one? Oh, yes, yes, please. His dad and I stood in line for two hours in Austin, Texas when it came out and said he said I can't wonder why he loves it so much. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Should I just sign my name or should I put it yeah. to somebody? I don't want the family to fight over this. No. No. Blake, that's up to you. Uh, I mean, it's it's up to you. It really is. You can put your name. You can say to Blake. The fourth I'll put my you. name. And I will put my fourth screen with you. But... What Star Wars, Wars character do you most identify with? Your family with? and Mr. Lucas? Um, I don't know. I have to sort of identify with all of them. <laughs> wow. I, that, that, that was a... I almost felt a little voyeuristic there, you know, in a way. But I'm so glad that we have it because it really... You're, you're exactly right. I, it Based on what we're hearing so far, this is the most comfortable, I think, that 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 I've heard of clips of of George, uh, yeah. at least in this environment, and you know here he is meeting a kid, and I, I love how you know what the cool thing about meeting a kid who's fifteen yeah. is he's still honest. I mean, hey, do you watch the Clone Wars? Now he doesn't say never miss it, watch it three times a week. He goes, yeah, now and then. He's being <laughs> he's <laughs> he's being honest, you know, and I, I and I, I I like that, and I like that he asked the questions. That he wanted the answer to, you know, right. not it's not right. what you would ask or whatever. It's what it's what he wanted to ask. And I tell you what, these kids that deal with these kinds of of uh, uh, diseases, uh, you know, and and for him to have the the composure and the posture, and he was just such a polite young man. I couldn't believe it uh, when you interviewed him. He was just there was something so classy about him. Yeah, very classy. Uh, what what a deserving kid. Sweet kid, Blake. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, that was just a, a feel-good. That was just a feel-good going on in this room where there was a lot going on. A lot of people were scrounging to get their spots and get what they wanted, and those, those photographers are piranha. But, I mean, just right in the middle of this mayhem, there was this, like, sweet moment that anyone around there who witnessed it, they they realized that, yeah, you know what, this is – now I start to see the power of George Lucas here. Right. You know, this isn't just – this isn't smoke. This is the real deal. So he stood, took a lot of pictures, and I was standing right next to George when after a while all of a sudden the doors open up and the media room becomes actually part of the uh, the event itself. Yeah. Because in the room right next door is a bar and it's just filled, you know, with a big reception. And so fans start coming in. And it was real interesting to see that because I'm standing right next to George. And you know, who knows what he was thinking at the time. I mean, he was very open and, and people were walking up and snapping photos with him and he was signing autographs and stuff. So the question I get asked a lot is, did you get his autograph? Because I, I was even thinking about it. And also, you know, you want to be professional in these situations. Mm-hmm. And to ask for an autograph is, you know, that's kind of... Well, stepping outside the boundaries, even though I revealed myself as being such a huge fan of his. Yeah. And let me ask you, Jim, did you feel, because yeah. you've, you've been to things, I mean, you've been to the Oscars, you've been to the Grammys, you've been to all these big events, and you've, you've been there as a representative of a, of a major media outlet. Yeah. Now, here, you're there as a fan, but you're there as 
Jimmy Mack, right. which is obviously we're a fan produced for the fans, by the fans, that kind of thing, kind of program. Did you feel any pressure to be any different or more professional or try to represent, you know, uh, fan driven content, you know, news content in, in any particular way? I did. But then again, that's we go back to that conversation we had about the sort of struggle I was having going into this. Yeah. And I just decided just to go with what my heart told me to do. Yeah. I mean, that was it. That was it. Well, I, I think, think your heart maker- told you to do the right thing. I think your heart told you to do the right thing. It was a great, it was a great, uh, great moment that you had, and you were able to share it with all of us. It's, it's very, very cool. I was just so happy that George saw the George Lucas hip hop video. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Yeah. Was, and he, yeah. He's like, yeah, 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 I saw it. You know, I, and I wouldn't know if yeah, he was BSing me. I saw there was immediate recognition in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You said that, that there was, you know, George has got a pretty, I mean, we do him here on the show. Yeah. It's uh, not a whole lot of uh, expression in his voice. It's pretty much, you know, like this. And, uh, but there's expression in his face. And so we're not getting that. And you said that there was this moment of uh, like you saw this recognition in his eyes. Like, uh, yeah, I saw <laughs> I saw that. And then you start quoting the lyrics. Well, what's so funny is that I just think about all the hours I've spent at home watching his films. There was a brief moment in history when George was sitting at his house watching our film. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. So- you think they screened it like in the. You know, in the in the at the ranch, you know, and <laughs> on the big screen, you know, the yeah. big George room that he's got. Yeah. You think you think they? <laughs> hey, everybody, come here! Look at this! Look at this! Hey, there I am! Look! Look at my bling! I love it. <laughs> but I mean, I was just thrilled. I was thrilled. I thought for sure he was going to say no, and then yeah. I was like, "Well, I'll quote it to him. Maybe he'll remember then." But he said yes, and I just felt I still should quote it for him. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this dinner in the in the menu. There was like you know George Lucas themed food. Yeah, yeah. Blue milk was that on the menu? Right away, right away when um, the doors opened up and all the fans came in for his autograph. And by the way, I did pick up one of the programs and stick it out to George, and he scribbled the GL on it. So I do have George's autograph in my collection. You know, everyone was asking oh, me. Oh, so. good. You, you did get it. You got the GL. Uh, well, just when everyone came in, right. I was standing right next to him. So I figured, well, whatever. Yeah. I, I should, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, well, of course. Of course. So I did. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy about the way everything went down. And then, so we're in the room getting the drinks now. And they had R2-D2 shots. Uh. So I had like five of those. <laughs> you're I like hey to Blake. the tough part's talking over to Blake and his family yeah down into r2 shots yeah the r2d2s they were fantastic so i'm talking to blake and his family and yeah. we're getting along real well and then they open up the doors to the uh the main ballroom where the dinner was going to be served and i went in there and started looking for places where i can get a good recording of this thing and as i'm looking around at the speakers and everything i hear it's jimmy mac jimmy mac and I look over, and it's my buddy Bill Kelly, whose TV show I used to do some work on called Upscale Chicago. Mm-hmm. I used to do some work on that, and he's at all these events and everything. I'd even think about it, but I was oh, so good to see you, Bill. He's like, where are you sitting? I go, oh, table 29 out in the corner. I said, where are you sitting? He says, table two, and he points at right in front of the stage. <laughs> then the next thing I know, there's a dude, a waiter wearing a tux, bringing in an, an extra chair, and he sits me down at table two. Oh, wow. 
I was like, oh, what a score. <laughs> now I'm sitting there, and it's on the corner where the chairs are yeah. where George and John Favreau are going to have their conversation. Right. Well, something everyone's been asking me is the menu inspired by George Lucas movies. And so we were speculating Howard the Rose Duck. Yeah, right, right, right. Was there Howard the Rose Duck? Well, let's, uh, let's listen to this uh, little audio presentation of the menu from our waitress, <laughs> Wendy. Oh, very cool. Welcome to the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. Tonight we're celebrating an adventure with George Lucas. I'd like to tell you about our dinner menu. We'll begin with Aunt Beru's Golden Gazpacho, followed by Jedi Sampler of Spring Salads. Then moving on to the main entree, Roasted Tauntaun Tenderloin with Imperial Wine Sauce, and Dagobah Swamp Bass with Mose Eisley-style Hollandaise. Tatooine green beans, whipped potatoes with Rancor radish, and for dessert, milkshake of wild Naboo strawberries. <laughs> and accompanying your meal, we're featuring Bin 1138 Wines. Please enjoy your meal, and may the Force be with you. It <laughs> was fun dining on Tauntaun Tenderloin <laughs> and drinking those uh, 1138 wines. I'll tell you what, my blood alcohol level was 1138 <laughs> after the end of this night. They really did keep us juiced. But, I mean, which, you know, I mean, it was just an amazing night, though. I mean, it yeah. was just really incredible. The Q&A with John Favreau was so much fun and so interesting to get to certain insights into George. And like I said, we're going to be hearing more of that later on. Uh, but at the end of the night, they gave George the Gene Siskel Award, and he got up and made a small speech. Uh, I'd just like to thank the Film Center, and uh, you know, it's, it's a great honor, especially uh, I have a great love of education. I have a great uh, fondness for uh, Gene Siskel and everything he meant in promoting movies, and I think that uh, this will go on my shelf in a very prominent place. Standing ovation for the man. Right. I think it's right next to the George Lucas Hip Hop Fan Film Award. <laughs> That's where the Siskel Award's going. I should also mention that uh, during the dinner, they did show a little edit of material from the Force Among Us crew. Oh, right. And yeah. That was, that was kind of cool. Chris Mocked was up there on the screen, and I looked over at George, and he was watching it. So there you go. Chris got the maker to see part of his film, which has been a big, big goal. Now, I know he wants him to see the whole thing, but uh, hey, it's a start. One of the coolest parts of the whole uh, George Lucas receiving the award in Chicago was that the Chicago Sun-Times, of course, a big and very famous newspaper uh, in Chicago, actually made a reference to our own Jimmy Max interview with George. And this is very cool. Uh, quoting the, uh, the, the, the Times article, it says, Moments after Hobson talked about Lucas's secret sense of humor, the filmmaking legend zinged a radio reporter. Yeah, little did he know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. When handed a strange-looking microphone contraption resembling a police device, um, and we've actually got a clip here of 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 George's reaction to uh, to Jim's microphone. Here it is. Don't tase me, bro. Don't tase me. I didn't do anything. Is that a taser? Are you trying? Oh, I'm sorry. Is that a is that a taser? You're trying to tase me? <laughs> <laughs> said George. Uh, and, and, and those of you who, who aren't familiar, the one of the pieces of uh, equipment that we have here called the H4 Zoom recorder, and you can 
Google it, and you'll see that it does. It's got these uh, these two. Uh, microphones on the end that actually come together in a point and and look like a taser or as I like to think it looks like the the speaker unit in um in Darth Vader's helmet but I have heard that taser comment before about this particular piece mm-hmm. of recording equipment and when you're you know standing in front of a guy like George Lucas who's probably always on guard you know well, and of course guy sitting there holding this device <laughs> that looks like a taser you know, uh, GL is going to call him out on that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, it was cool. I, I, too bad the guy didn't realize who you were, Jim. Yeah. Does well, he know who you are? Does he know who you are? Well, he he knows I'm a radio reporter. So right, uh, right. You no, know, he's cool. not. He's he's going to stay unbiased and not give out any free plugs <laughs> in a, an esteemed newspaper such as the Chicago right. Sun Times. But Bill Zwecker is the guy who wrote this column, and Bill's a you know he's a legendary. Like I said before, these guys, they're legendary Chicago entertainment columnists, and I'm standing there in line with them to talk to George Lucas. I'm just like, what? I mean, it's, it's, it's Luke said on Dagobah, I don't know. This is something out of a dream. <laughs> so that's how I felt. But you know what? I would just like to sum up the evening by saying that it was a dream come true. And I'm happy I was able to share my experience meeting George with everyone. As I've said before, I wanted to show what it's like when a fan meets the man. I was a little nervous, but I was glad I didn't puke on his shoes. <laughs> I know he likes to wear plaid, but not that kind of plaid. Right, right. I like that, I like that, that Wendy made you wear a suit and George walks in in jeans, right? George was wearing jeans, a checkered button-up collared shirt, and an Armani jacket that Melody bought him about an hour before the event. <laughs> he just showed up wearing old jeans and a shirt, and she's like, oh, George. So she actually had to make a quick run out to Armani. I love it. I love it. I'll never forget, speaking of uh, George's in these last minute, I remember seeing George Jones, country legend George Jones, marching in a, in a, in a parade at the Country Music Hall of Fame when I was working in Nashville. Here comes George, you know, more money than I don't know, you know, a lot of money this guy's made. And here he comes wearing a T-shirt that you could tell he just busted it out of the package. And it was still <laughs> it still had the creases in it. So <laughs> if you would have checked George's shirt, maybe it would have still had the creases in it from when it was folded up at JCPenney. What do you think? Yeah, it was uh, it probably was fresh out of the thing and it had the creases on it. That's why she had to go get him the jacket. Right. I, I, I like that. He also has it unbuttoned a little bit, showing a little chest. Yeah. Little George chest. Very cool. Ch-ch-ch-chia. It's the George Lucas Chia Pet. Move over, Barack Obama Chia Pet. Just add the magic Chia Pet seeds and watch it grow. Wow, look at how bushy his beard is. Ch-ch-ch-chia. With the new George Lucas Chia Pet, I have as much green on my head as I have in my wallet. Just add the magic Chia Pet seeds and watch it grow. Ch-ch-ch-chia. Check out that fro. Fun for all ages. I'm going to use this for my science project at school. It's sure to be at first place. Revolutionizing filmmaking and home gardening. That head is greener than a doobat. And be sure to pick up Darth Chia and Chia Baca. It's the George Lucas Chia Pet. I look pretty good with a green fro. I have good news for you, my lord. That's good news. Come closer, I have good news. All right, your headlines. We'll start with, well, 
our biggest story. The adventure with George Lucas continues. Jimmy, you got some exclusive clips of the uh, the Q&A session with uh, director John Favreau. Uh, well, I shouldn't say just director John Favreau, filmmaker John Favreau, actor John Favreau, producer. Uh, he's got lots of titles and wears lots of hats. So not only were you seeing a, a big star in, in George, but also uh, John Favreau. And I love that show he did on, I think it was the Independent Film Channel or might have been on Bravo, one of those uh, Dinner for Five. Do you remember those shows? I do. I do. He was fantastic on this. Yeah. And he did such an awesome job at the Four Seasons, uh, Saturday, June 13th. George handpicked John Favreau to conduct this Q&A with him. And it wasn't like anyone supplied John with material. He went and did the research and looked back at his fandom, his Star Wars fandom and his Lucasfilm fandom and realized that this is a great opportunity to be able to really pick the brain of a mentor. So John left the set of Iron Man 2, which is unheard of, I mean, that Iron Man is consuming his life right now, but he left to get on a flight to come to Chicago and do this Q&A with George Lucas. And John Favreau is a Chicago guy at heart. He spent several years here doing improv comedy before his career really took off with Swingers mm. and didn't even realize that he was on George Lucas's radar, uh, met him briefly once or twice, spent some time at the ranch doing work on Iron Man. He, he told us that he was there for three weeks doing post prod on Iron Man, sound mix, etc. But never realized that George Lucas had even seen any of his movies, much less be a fan of his. So it was a big thrill for him, and he took it very seriously. And it was a real, you know, it was a black tie event. It was very it, like a wedding, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I said, that was that sort of atmosphere. And they were up on stage and. I did notice George starting to become more and more comfortable as he was sitting up there. And John did a fantastic job. So I'm so proud to be able to bring you guys this exclusive podcast footage. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. This is John Favreau in Chicago interviewing George Lucas, an adventure with George Lucas as he's being honored by the Gene Siskel Film Center. And um, like I said, no fan left behind. Well, this is a, this is a big treat for me. I've... I think it's the most I've talked to George, just having There's dinner more than I've spoken to him, although we've run into each other a lot. I, I think I spoke to you for the first time at Carrie Fisher's birthday. Carrie Fisher has a birthday party, a big barbecue down in L.A., and George flies down, and I was behind him online for the Southern cooking. And, uh, and then after George leaves, Carrie busts out the uh, Star Wars Christmas special every year that she pops in. <laughs> so we all watch that together. Uh, but I got to speak to George about, about what he does and Skywalker Sounds. I ended up uh, mixing Iron Man up there at Sky, the Skywalker Ranch. And we'll cover a lot of these things tonight. Uh, I have some... I, I, was, I, I misunderstood. I thought uh, somebody told me this was a roast, so I'm probably not going <laughs> to... These probably aren't going to work out. Uh, so we'll wing it. Uh, Let's get into it through what I think is your entry point and certainly what I've learned from hearing you speak and being affected by the people who have influenced you. And from having looked at a lot of interviews of yours and then gone back and looked at your work again, it seems that the clearest through line, and I think the one that we should use as our guiding post through this, is, is the power of myth, archetype, the work of Joseph Campbell, the Jungian way of breaking apart archetypes and telling the same story in a new way that's been told, that song that's been sung 
since the Homeric poems. And the reason for your success and the reason that you've been able to electrify the whole world with your storytelling seems to be falling back on the old principles that had been abandoned. So I'd like you to speak a little bit about your basic thesis approach to making movies and telling a story in that context. Well, I think, uh, you know, writing is a very difficult thing and you really have to pull it out of yourself. And uh, I've written everything I've done, so uh, I'm not sure why, because I hate writing, but um, I just, the idea of making a movie that somebody else wrote just doesn't connect to me. And um, almost everything I do is informed by um, the kinds of things I wanted when I uh, uh, was young and what uh, I spent a great deal of my time in high school wanting to be a race driver and cruising the main street of town and working on cars. And then uh, after I got out of high school, I wanted to be an artist and an illustrator. And I ended up in the social sciences majoring in anthropology and was going to go to... Um, uh, San Francisco State is an anthropology major and then through serendipity ended up going with a friend to USC and discovering that they had a school where you learn how to make movies and I had no interest in movies but as a result of that um, I uh, got into something that actually covers all of the things I was interested in so one of the main influences I mean you'll see all of those influences in my movies, in terms of where do they come from, you know, it's sort of an illustrator's uh, flair for the dramatic, as opposed to a fine artist, somebody who actually is doing emotional uh, art and storytelling through art. Um, and uh, there's always, I love speed, I love the motion part of motion pictures, and uh, became very fascinated with that in school. So I'm very much into. Uh, the the pure cinema, the actual how motion pictures work. Let me pick that apart a little bit. Um, so you got speed, and you got cars, and as you also said something very interesting that that you have you appreciate an illustrator more than a fine artist. And if you've ever been to, I've had the good fortune of being at the ranch. I mixed uh, Iron Man up there and uh, was there for three weeks. And I'll talk more about the ranch in the second half of this, but. Essentially, George has created this wonderland that any film fan or filmmaker would love to be at. It's beautiful, uh, arts and crafts-inspired architecture, state-of-the-art technology. And there you are, and essentially a shrine to filmmakers of days gone by. You stay in a room. Each room is themed after a different filmmaker or writer. There's the Kurosawa suite. There's the John Ford suite, which I stayed in. Dorothy Parker has a suite. And they're all themed around them. And it's another thing you could... You can get a reservation for it. You have to be guest of the ranch, and it is a storied location. And to be doing, to be mixing Iron Man on the Kurosawa stage really brought a lot. And then, of course, George pops his head in, and he's in the main house, and you're having lunch together, and it's by Lake Ewok. So it's a, it's a, it's a you know, that in and of itself is inspiring. Uh, in, this, in this environment, uh, you have beautiful artwork hanging on the walls. And I noticed that the artwork wasn't fine artists. It was commercial artists of their time. It was Norman Rockwell, beautiful original Rockwells, and Maxfield Parrish originals. And as George says, these were not artists that were doing it to... They were not commissioned by the church in years gone by. These were people who were paid to sell 
calendars or soapboxes or the cover of a magazine. And it's where commercial popular art meets inspired, an inspired take on your craft that come together, which I think is a great defining aspect of your career. Because you came along in a time when the studio system was falling apart, the old way of making movies wasn't working, then the raging bull approach of youth-oriented movies was coming into, into play, starting to make money. But it wasn't until you and Steven both were doing Star Wars, Jaws, that an old-fashioned way of reinventing old genres came back around. And I found it interesting that you embraced what you grew up with, which was the Saturday morning serials, after you sort of thumb your nose at it a little bit at the beginning of THX in this dystopian view of the future, this Orwellian view. And then you turn around after making a very earnest film with, with American Graffiti, a very nostalgic film, and then embrace the genre that hadn't been used before and now are creating a whole new set of myths. And for me, I was a kid. I was a prepubescent, a tween, whatever you call it now. And I saw these movies for the first time. And for my father, it was nostalgic. But for me, it was a whole new world. So how did you shift as a, as a person to go from somebody who was really questioning man's relationship with society in a way that was a little bit more cynical to one who was telling these incredibly earnest uh, uh, swashbuckling adventures? Well, again, uh, the, the secret is you do end up having to work out of your heart. You have to do what you really care about. You have to do s subjects that you really believe in and that, that express your, your feelings or your observations on the world. Um, and uh, so everything in my movie centers around things that I love and I care about. And then I do end up with these observations about, which is really comes out of the anthropo anthropological part, which is why do we think the way we do? Why do we? And I had a couple courses in mythology and um, uh, became very fascinated with the idea that that, from my point of view, mythology was a form of, psychological archaeology because you're able to go back and actually see what people were thinking 3,000 years ago. What, what did they love? What did they hate? What were they afraid of? Uh, you know, what was their relationship to their parents? What were the real emotional issues they had to deal with? And uh, I was always curious about the fact that I felt that those issues still worked today and people still had the same feelings, the same uh, issues with their parents and it's not just psychological, it's, it's a, a slightly, you know, once Freud came into the picture, uh, it became a little bit more specific. I was int more interested in the Jungian point of view, which is a little bit more general in terms of how these myths get passed on. And um, I, in doing Star Wars, I mean, in, in uh, my anthropological class, I read a lot of Joe Campbell. And when I was doing Star Wars, I went back and reread it and started doing a lot of research on... Uh, the various motifs of um, of uh, comparative mythology, which is what are the things that are common to all myths all over the world, all cultures, and what are the things that are the same? And I wonder why they're the same. And I wonder if that holds a certain truth. So when I did Star Wars, that's where a lot of that came from. It was, a, it was actually a giant experiment to see if those issues, those psychological underpinnings, the psychological underpinnings, still touched people today the same way they did several thousand years ago.
And I think we realized the answer to that question is absolutely yes. <laughs> you know, he hit the yeah. ball right on the sweet spot. And uh, it's interesting to hear George really get that deep into his thought process behind storytelling and myth-making. It's almost like listening to a college professor. It is. Then- it is. I was just thinking that. It was very, uh, yes, prof- professorial or, or uh, yeah, um, uh, very, uh, yeah, yeah, what you said. <laughs> I forgot the word that I was, I was going to say, but, I mean, there was – it was – it's amazing, and I like the fact that there are people out there, certain trekkers, who like to say, "Well, you know, Star Wars is cool and it's fun, but there's no depth to it." You know, no depth to this. This speaks. I mean, Star Wars, the the mythology of Star Wars speaks to the very essence of what it is to be a human being. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's amazing. It is. It's just what what George said. It is this the amalgamation of, of all these myths uh, and, and the way they're transferred from one generation to another. So uh, when I, I get so excited to hear George talk like this, we, we, we plugged uh, um, the Charlie Rose interview that's available on audible.com um, that George did. George has done a number of interviews. There's, there's the Charlie Rose, there's the Bill Moyers, and it's always such a treat to hear George really talk in depth about, about his craft. This is, this is a lot of fun tonight. Right, right. It's, it's not that he's just making this stuff up as he goes along. No, no. He's not lucky, folks. <laughs> There's so much research going right. on. And yeah. yes, he made Star Wars this melting pot of the history of storytelling from modern to ancient times going yeah. back. And he took the, all the little ingredients that made the story so powerful and so, and and what made the stories have longevity, and they took it and made it into Star Wars, something so fun and something that we can look at and consume. It just doesn't happen. Just like you said, Jason, I love that. He's not lucky. It took a lot of work, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And what he learned along the way was how to tell stories. And John Favreau brought that up to him. Could you talk a little bit about what the word story means? We hear it bandied about a lot. Well, um, story ultimately um, and storytellers are the, um, their job really is to bind a society together. Their job is to find the common thread that make us all one people. Uh, and uh, in you know, uh, Homer's day, that's what he did. I mean, the, the storytellers of that day and even before when there was just people sitting around caves with fires, the storyteller would come and he would tell all the great stories. And the stories basically reflected what that society believed in. And that was how the culture ultimately was passed down from one generation to another. You can't just sort of you know, stand people up against the wall and say, okay, now you're going to learn about our culture. Uh, it, it's never really happened that way. It's always happened with the use of imagination and fantasy and metaphor and things where the people get what the issues are, what the morals are, what the, how you, uh, uh, what's expected of you, uh, what the rules are, without actually saying these are the rules, here it is, memorize them and do it. Um, and as a result of that, I, I just became fascinated in that part of storytelling. Uh, and that is the thing that as you go along, 
um, you realize that in the end, I mean, there's a lot of issues, but the storyteller, his job basically was to tell the story. And in order to, you know, and that's why he, you know, he'd come to something like this and, you know, he'd tell you a story and he'd get paid some money or he'd get a free dinner. And, uh, and that's how he made his living. You know, it's the same as the guy on the street corner, you know, the hat and playing the violin. He was an entertainer, and he, but he was a cultural entertainer, and he was passing on uh, cultural information. But first and foremost, he had to be an entertainer. In the beginning, they had the advantage of being live performers. There's nothing like a live performance to make you really understand what works and what doesn't work, because if it doesn't work, everybody kind of sits there, and if it works, they respond. And so a lot of the stories that have come down, which is basically mythology, was honed over and over the, over the centuries, passed down from father to son. And the things that really worked were put in there, and the things that don't work weren't. So what you do is, for me, I have found that in telling a story, you're telling something that connects to everybody, that everybody has some sort of psychological connection to. And then on the other part, you're entertaining. You, you try to scare people. You try to make people laugh. You try to uh, make them cry. And you make, do all the things that ultimately people like to do to be entertained. Now, um, that's kind of the cultural art form. I came up with a definition in my own mind of what I thought art was because everybody throws it around and calls it lots of different things and everything. But to me, art is the ability of, uh, that human beings have to use technology to share their emotions, which means you can talk to other people. So, and most work up until really the last century was very emotional work, or as we call it, pop work, which is, it appealed to the commoner. Uh, and not necessarily elite. Uh, and that's why you see it in churches, that's why you see it, because most people couldn't read, and that was the way they communicated, which is to show you something that made you feel the power of God simply from a painting. Uh, and it's a true emotion. And to me, that's what art is, and now it's come down to, you know, gets mistaken with entertainment a lot. But I'm very much one that, feels that art is not an intellectual medium. Art is a, an emotional medium. And if it's intellectual, then it's a, a book of directions. And uh, you can... Uh, uh, the, the one art form where that combines itself in a more intricate way is in, is in uh, the written word. But even in the written word, mostly it's an emotional connection that makes you like the work. It's not an intellectual connection that makes it work. And, and you're also, uh, it, it also uh, what I thought you were going to say was architecture, because that's another one of, uh, you know, you've been incredibly prolific, and unfortunately, the same amount of people don't get to see what you've been able to accomplish as in your films, but I've been there with at Big Rock, and I've been there at the ranch, and I think uh, that's another one of those disciplines where you're using technology and also a you, it, it's, it's another one of those art forms that you can't just do alone. It's not like a painting. You need to bring together a group of craftsmen to support you in a vision to create an emotional response as you walk into a space. Yeah, it is. It's a uh, uh, the great thing. I mean, I love architecture, and that's, I say that's what I do for my hobby is build things. Uh, I wanted to be an architect when I was in high school, but I couldn't get through the math, so I just give it up. And uh, but uh, now I can do all the the part where you design the building and let the architects actually figure out how to make it. 
Uh, and uh, so architecture is, each art form is very, very different. And that's a lot of things people get confused uh, about how all these things work. Um, reading, uh, the spoken word, you know, that, that kind of storytelling, well, especially the reading. Reading is an intellectual exercise. It's not, uh, you see words, you take words, you put it into your brain, you translate them into your imagination, and then they swim around how you place the words. It creates a picture in your head, and that's where you do it. That is very, very different than, say, music, where it only goes in your ear, and music is almost completely emotional. Most of the other art forms have two components, which is emotional and intellectual. Uh, music is, you know, 80% emotional and 20% intellectual. It's just, and, and it's, so, it's so emotional that even a dog can understand it. I mean, it just completely crosses all boundaries, all borders. And since that's what I do is emotion, you, you get into these things where, like, especially like in a house where you actually have to build an environment. It's a whole different kind of an emotional experience. Uh, that you actually walk through, where movies have to do with motion. It has to do with a finite amount of time, which is similar to music, but it's, it's you're moving through a space as opposed to uh, a book that you can pick up and put down. Uh, but movies, you, you, you're, hear, you're hearing it and you're seeing it, and it's in a specific time, so it's like a dream. It's like a manufactured dream is what we do over a given period of time. And you've got to believe in it. We've got to convince people that it actually exists, you know, just like your dreams exist. So that necessitates a whole different kind of, of uh, way of doing things. I love that. I love that, how he says that a movie is a manufactured dream. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's like the big takeaway, I think, from, from, uh, from that segment. I mean, there's, really there's so much there. I mean, there's there's so much we could talk <laughs> we could talk about. The, the The purpose of this is not so much to analyze, but to share with you guys uh, what was being said. And I'm hearing all this for the first time, so I'm just I'm soaking it all in. And um, it's just there's nothing that turns me on more than listening to somebody who is one of the best at what they do, talking about doing what they do. I mean, I just get it. Just excites me to no end. We spend so much time debating and wondering and guessing, why did George do this? Why did George do that? These little looks inside of his, his thought process into his philosophy of filmmaking. I mean, we're going right to the core here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's real analytical and it's real intellectual. But as they talk more and more about using film to raise emotions in a viewer, it starts getting a little more lighthearted, especially with the example Favreau uses. Well, let, let's talk about your, because this whole emotional connection you have to filmmaking, uh, it, you know, legend has it that after THX, uh, Francis had a conversation with you uh, asking you to do something, I think he said fuzzy or, or cuddly. And your response was something like, it's easy to make people feel an emotion in a movie, you just kill a puppy. Is that, was that the right quote? Or Well, no, I said there's a... The, the, the other part of this whole equation, I mean, there's, I, I studied on this quite a bit. And um, there's two kinds of art. Uh, there is what I call craft, which is where you do see something that's beautifully put together, and it creates an emotion. Uh, and in that 
kind of craft, there is an intellectual component on the part of the craftsman to try to put it together, to use his aesthetic, to try to translate that into another person. The easier form of entertainment and emotional entertainment is what I call circus. And circus was one of the earlier forms of entertainment. And that's where you do, you take a little puppy and you throw him on a freeway. And hopefully it'll go for 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, but people sit there, you know, completely, you know, they won't turn away. They'll watch that, you know. But that's the same thing as circus. It's the same thing as, as what, you know, the Rome and the gladiators and, and a lot, you know, uh, the Olympics. I mean, there's lots and lots of examples of circus, which isn't really an intellectual exercise, uh, but it's equally as entertaining. But and, and I played see- Frogger a lot, so yeah, I guess I can see what you're saying. <laughs> a lot of quarters. So uh, did that spawn American Graffiti in some way? No, American Graffiti was basically Francis. I'd done this sort of. I, I came out of a world of experimental filmmaking in San Francisco, where there were what we call underground films, Canyon Cinema, where they were very abstract films, uh, and today we sort of call that uh, video art. But in those days, it was actually filmmaking. It was underground filmmaking. And, and um, there were some great... There were, and there were some very, very accomplished artists that were moving back and mm-hmm. forth between these mediums. mediums. Uh, and that's uh, and what I was fascinated with. And it's abstract. There's no story, no character. It's just using film in itself to create an emotion. And most of my student films look like that. And most of everything. I said, I got a chance to direct a movie under circumstances where the studio wasn't going to be involved. And I said, well, gee, this is a chance to make a feature-length sort of abstract movie you know, in the kind of style that I wanted it to do. And I did it, and of course, you know, 12 people saw it, and it was a dismal failure. So then, uh, as a result of that, Francis, we had Ameri- this company called American Zoetrope, and it drove it right into the ground, bankrupted it. We owed a whole bunch of money. I certainly couldn't make a living. Francis could. He was actually a, what you call a professional director. So he had to go off and direct the, the Godfather in order to pay off the debt of American Zoetrope. And, he, and I said, well, now what am I going to do? And he said, well, look, why don't you, why don't you uh, try to make a movie, Warm and Fuzzy? <laughs> I like that the Godfather was, oh, I got some debts to pay. It's very, it's very Godfather-like. I have yeah. debts to pay. So I <laughs> I gotta go make this mob movie, this little movie called The Godfather. Amazing! I thought that was that was just really telling, and how George uses ancient storytelling as the backbone for a lot of things he does. He even brings up things like studying things like the Roman gladiators and what what was it that that got those audiences off so much? And so what he does, he calls it circus. Right, and the example is throwing a puppy on the freeway yeah. <laughs> and hoping it dodges cars for ninety minutes, there's, and people sit there to watch the whole thing. There's craft and there's circus, and and here's the guy who, in in many people's minds, is the the epitome of popular film, and he's making the distinction between not between pop art and you know what what, what some consider real culture, or, or you know some people say films. There's movies and there's films. But George is making the distinction here between uh, circus and craft. And I, I, I love that he frames the argument that way. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's really brilliant. We are sitting here in the auditorium for George Lucas 101. I mean, who wouldn't want to take this college course? Yeah, no doubt. Fantastic. So a lot of the evening was about that. They got into talking about architecture a lot. Strangely enough, and, and also very astutely, 
John Favreau brought up, of all films, Radioland Murders, because <laughs> that is the film that George really started to develop his technique of using an all-digital set. And we've seen what he can do with that. I mean, we, we know like the back of our hand what he can do with that. Right. So it was, but it was revolutionary at the time. He didn't use it to push the envelope, push the boundaries like he did with episode one, two, or three. But it was, that's the place where he came up with the technique. Which leads us to our last clip. And this is the end of the conversation. This is the end of the evening. It seemed like John Favreau could have gone talking with George for another three, four hours. They had to stop him. Yeah. It was only supposed to be 45 minutes and went on for over an hour. Huh. Um, but we're going to play this clip, and this is from a secondary source because um, we had a little problem with our, uh, with our uh, patch into the soundboard. And, I mean, these things happen in a live situation, and everyone knows that our motto is no fan left behind. So we run a backup, and our backup <laughs> microphone picked up the room audio. Um, and I want to play this for you. Like I said, it's a, it's a little harder to hear than the, than the previous audio we've played because this is off a of mic in the room. Um, but it's interesting because George talks about the future and everyone wants to know what's coming up in the future, what's going on. And so he talks about how digital film technology has made things easier for him to tackle a lot of projects at once, especially writing for television. And you'll hear here in this clip that George explains in very human ways why he worked so hard to develop digital film technology the way he has. And we also hear about how much writing he's actually doing right now, which I think will impress you. So here it is. Uh, this is the end of the interview. It's a few minutes of George talking about what I just said. I work in, in, in shows because I'll go from being a director, uh, a writer, producer. And uh, now uh, I'm doing television. I spend most of my time writing stories. I don't actually do the screenplays, but I lay the whole thing out, you know, all the scenes and how everything goes together with the story. And so I do the whole story, turn it over to a writer or work with a writer, and then they turn in a screenplay. And I'm doing literally uh, 40 screenplays right now. Uh, and then on, uh, I get to go into the editing room and, and I, I cut the things I work on. I love, I'm basically an editor. That's what I really love to do. I started out working as an editor and then became a director and an editor, editor, photographer, wanted to do documentary films. So I'm very much that kind of a person. And um, I love to get in the editor room and that's where I believe the movie is actually made, you know, where you move everything around and you get to see it as you do it. You know, it's like, it is like sculpting or painting, painting, because you really do sit there and you say, well, okay. And then you, Hearing you look at it and you say, that's not quite right, that's good. Purple, purple. And it's the, the fun part of the whole process. But other, the other part, which is one of it is we develop things, and we're still in the process of getting digital cinema into your local theater here. We have a, it's happening, it's just taken us. We started in 1999, and uh, we discovered over the years that it takes about 10 years for a change to take place. Like, um, um, but you'll see that the quality of your screen, your picture, your sound, everything will improve. Um, and it will also save, by the way, the movie industry because yeah. the one area, as I was talking to your partner Rick, that you guys have been dealing with is is this whole, and I don't mean to get technical and we are having to wrap up, but it's interesting to me, so I hope it's interesting to some of you. Right now the movie industry is getting hurt because of piracy and DVDs, 
uh, they're trying to bring in 3D technology, IMAX, things to keep people going to theaters, but it's a, it's a shrinking business model. Uh, with digital distribution, there's a big whole line item of P&A, prints and advertising, that are going to be greatly, greatly, greatly reduced, and that's one area where we could actually enjoy savings to allow us to continue to make movies. So it's being very, it's being very uh, 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 you, you, when you see the special effects, you can see, oh yeah, we could not do that before. Some things you just were, did not exist. And because of the finances of movies, you know, when you go to the 60s and the 70s, they all just did contemporary street movies. Uh, they couldn't do historical movies, they couldn't do any kind of epic thing. So it opens up the, the where you can make movies and how you can make movies. A lot of things are purely because I work physically in the business. You know, and we look at editing, and I'm an editor, and I look at editing, and I say, God, there's got to be a better way of doing this. This is, you know, you tear sprocket holes, you have to take, you just, it's a really cumbersome process. So I invented digital editing, well, you don't have to do any of that stuff. And it's the same thing with a lot of where Apparently, I'm a lazy person. So I don't have to do any more work than I actually have to. And if I can get a computer to figure out how to do most of it, and I just get to do the fun part, you know, it comes really from, again, my, my uh, hobby of architecture. You know, the math is really hard, and learning all the, the rules and everything is really hard. So doing the drawing of what it's going to look like is fun. And uh, so I got into a position where I could just do the fun parts of life and not have to do the ugly parts of life. Uh, and they worked very hard to get there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, what a lot of people like to do. And then I discovered on top of it all, which is why it took 15 years out, was the, the real part of life is raising kids. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, I want to thank George and all of you. Standing ovation for George Lucas. Everyone was hanging on every word he had to say. What I love about that last clip is that he reveals he's working on literally 40 screenplays for television right now. Hmm. I wonder what those could be. <laughs> I, there, I think there are a lot of great outlines for the Clone Wars, for the live-action TV show, for the second animated Star Wars TV show we're going to be seeing in the future. And something else that really stood out to me right there is that he said that he worked so hard to create the digital film technology that he's responsible for because essentially he's lazy. <laughs> so it takes a lazy person to work yeah. his butt off to get what he wants so he can be lazy. But I, you know, I think he's just being self-effacing. I think that he's a freaking genius to be able to be in the room with him and hear all that stuff. You guys heard it all yourselves. It was just incredible. It was an incredible yeah. look inside the man behind Star Wars and a very intellectual look. And it was uh, a night I'll never forget, and I'm so glad I was able to share those exclusive podcast audio highlights from the Four Seasons Hotel Main Ballroom. It was Saturday, June 13th. George Lucas was in Chicago to be honored by the Cisco Film Center, an adventure with George Lucas, John Favreau on stage interviewing one of his idols of all time, George Lucas. Yeah, incredible. And, uh, we all got to be there for it. Incredible night, man. I mean, it, this uh, was... Uh it was a fanboy's dream. He just he never disappoints um, when he's when he sits down for a real serious conversation. Rebel Force Radio. The Force is strong in this one. Your source for the Force. The defense calls George Lucas. George.
George Lucas. State your name in the latest film. Uh, George Lucas, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And do you think Phantom Menace is as good a movie as Empire? Well, certainly. I uh, think it's the best movie I've made yet. Permission to treat this witness as hostile. Mr. Lucas, how do you explain that in Star Wars, Obi-Wan tells Luke that when he met his father, he was a great pilot, but in Menace, he's just a little boy? Uh, well, my, my kids thought. And how come Obi-Wan tells Luke that Yoda is the Jedi that trained him, but in the movie, Liam Neeson trains Obi-Wan? Uh, well, the power of myth. Isn't it true you wrote it over a weekend but kept telling people it was done for years? Objection, your honor. The pond race was pretty cool. Your source for the force. Star Wars parody. <laughs> this is the official Celebration 5 post-game show where uh, we're going to be highlighting all of the things that uh, we experienced and maybe some of the things we didn't experience at Celebration 5. There was just so much to do. Day three starts off with, um, of course, the buzz in the air is all about the main event. The main event is the main event. And let me say that the ovation um, that greeted George when he came out was was uh, was huge, huge. The applause, it was one of those, it was like it was going to, I felt like it was going to go on forever. You know, just people standing and just applauding and applauding and applauding. And, you know, he, he's given the big thumbs up, you know, as he came out. And... Um, you could you could tell that that the moment was not lost on him that even though this is a guy that 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 doesn't do a lot of these kinds of things um he he i think realized the significance of the moment and yeah. and was open to all the love that was being 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 you know thrown on him i really yeah, he do. was real real quick to flash the thumbs up and i'm pretty sure he looked right at me when he did it yeah i <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he did I'm sure he did. Hey, that's the guy that tried to tase me. Um, but uh, like I said, right out of the right out of the gate, um, uh, news about the animated series headed by Seth Green. There's always got to be somebody who takes the brunt of the, let's say, ridicule. And in the first film, it was 3PO. Right. Nobody could stand 3PO. They hated him. He was the worst character on earth. All he did was talk. He was fussy. They couldn't stand him. Uh, then. Uh, in the third film, we introduced the cute little Ewoks. And that then took all the pressure off 3PO. 3PO right. And they loved 3PO after that, <laughs> but they hated the Ewoks. They said, kill, you know, and they were going to lynch me and do all kinds of terrible things. And because the, the design we had in the design group was dare to be cute. And we knew, we knew we'd get killed for it, but we said, we got to, you know, right. why not? And then, uh, then obviously, the last victim of this ridicule has been poor old Jar Jar Binks, which is basically he is the, fu- the same sort of fussy, fumble, bumble guy that Threepio was. Right, right, right. But anyway. Guess who my kids love? There's got to be somebody in there for everybody to they hate. They love Jar Jar. Love him. You know, it, uh, you, you, you can never write to your, with your audience in mind. You have to write to the story in mind. I mean, right. I, that's the way that I've always found it as well. Well... Younger comedy, the older fans don't like. Right, and right. we know we have a real, honest-to-God, generation gap with Star Wars, which is we found out from the first when right, right, we right. brought out episode one, which is anybody over 40 loves 4, 5, and 6, hates 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> but you will notice that the kids that are under 40 or under 30, let's put right. it that way, under 30 all love 1, 2, and 3, including Jar Jar Binks, and hate 4, 5, and 6. Because 
It's, oh, where are the younger ones? Hold on one second. If you're 10 years old, stand up and fight for your rights. Yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't, I didn't quite understand what that was, so can you translate to me what that was, what, what they were doing? Was that just yelling? Show me, show me the gesture that would be what they just did to us. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's what I was thinking for. That's what I was thinking for. Coming from the crowd. But of course, now... They were being coy. I didn't now, know what you were getting at. Now we got the under 10-year-old set. That's, that, that set has grown up a little bit. Right. Now we've got the Clone Wars, which means the under 10-year-olds don't even know about Star Wars. All right. I know about is Ahsoka. And so, that's the one. And they're happy. Are you working on, are you working on any product for fetal? Um, any... <laughs> Yes. Anything that you can inject into your audience through ultrasound. Um, We are doing that right now. Seth Green. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) Right there. Uh, uh, I love it. I, I thought Robot Chicken was so funny that I convinced him that we would do a, a, a little cartoon show like SpongeBob SquarePants for four and five years old, and he still believes that it's for, you know, 21-year-olds. Right, right, right. 25-year-olds. Why not? Beautiful. So, as far as he knows and everybody here, it's for 21-year-olds. It's just going to look like it's for (laughs) five-year-olds. And... uh, It'll be some strange kind of mishmash that nobody at this point really knows what's going to happen. But I know one thing, it'll be funny. Yes, no question. It'll be funny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Seth Green's involved, it'll be funny. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the, the overriding, you know, there's a lot of spirituality to it. The force, the inspiration for the force, you put these out as stories. Did you ever think, you know what? Why don't I just turn this into Dianetics? Forget about merchandising. <laughs> Start my own religion. Move everybody out to the desert. <laughs> Do a little number on that. You know, what, 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 was, the, what was the idea originally well, in, in utilizing the Force? The Force ultimately was, um, I had studied comparative mythology. And so what I did basically was take the... the um, uh, you know, intelligent ruler, the, the God idea. And I went through all of the religions and I found the commonality. And the commonality ultimately is what the force is, which is it's all religion. So you can interpret it any way you want. And obviously it's sliced and diced very thin, uh, no matter whether you're Christian or Muslim or, any, or anything. You're, it, it, you know, there's like 16 or 25 say, or 35 say, different... You can say Jew. You can say yeah, Jew. I can yeah. say Jew. But there's a lot of different... There's a lot of there's fewer Jews, so there's fewer versions. Less midichlorians. Yeah, no, it's 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 you get uh, you know you get what maybe there's like two or three dozen sects of different. Right, right, right. You know, you got right. the Orthodox, the Progressive, the Reform, which is Reform Jews that eat thing. bacon. Yeah, you yeah. don't you don't have the you don't have the nice history that the Christians have, where right. it was all Catholic, and then they broke to the Protestants, and the Protestants broke up, and then the Catholics broke up, and then pretty soon you have all these. At least the Muslims, they only have Shia and Sunni, and yeah. Sunni so Sunni. it's like it's much easier, easier to keep but, track of. But everybody breaks it all up. But they have, they still have a lot in common. Matter of fact, they all have the same God. That sort of helps for the start. Uh, so then, if you say, "Well, what is that God?" and then you say, "Well, we're not going to make it a person or anything. We're going to just take go back 
to animism and the really early religions, you end up with basically what the force is, which is some higher power and the way it works, the interaction is, you know, the way most religions interact. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a basically a way of uh, keeping spirituality alive. Is the Jedi, is the idea that the Jedi is kind of a priest, but that, you know, they can channel that force through them and that, you know, they, they can actually utilize it, you know, in, in well, sort of modern society, they're not it, able to. It, it's, a, it's the monk idea. Whether you go to the Christian monk or the thing, but or right. the Templar Knights Templar, or you go to the the uh, uh, you know the the uh, Buddhist monks or right. the you know Kung Fu monks, uh, <laughs> you get you get a warrior monk. And in the idea with Star Wars is that the monks are really not warriors; they're negotiators. They're just the mafia. <laughs> and they negotiate like the mafia, which is they, or as Teddy Roosevelt would say, you know, they negotiate uh, disputes between planets, between things. They're not like policemen or anything, but between planets and things. Right. But they negotiate with a big stick, with a big lightsaber. Right, right, right. So if you don't sort of come to a conclusion, you know, with your dispute with each other, right. I will settle it for you. Right. <laughs> Now, is there, was, there, was there any reason why they couldn't get married? Was that, that the emotion of it or the idea yeah. that they'd love something would be the, too much? The, the idea is that what is the whole idea of the movie ultimately is that, that you have the light side and you have the dark side. The light side is compassion, which means you care about other people. The dark side is you care, and care, only, you, you, uh, care only about yourself. And you're obsessed with yourself and getting your pleasure and getting all your stuff. The other one, you're, 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 you give it to everybody. You give uh, goodness and help to everybody else. So the, the issue of, of love, there's a line between loving somebody compassionately and caring about them and helping them. And, and, but the other line is not to be uh, greedy or once you're greedy, then you get fearful because you, want to, you don't want to lose what it is you have that you're getting. So you have to learn to give up everything. So, and ultimately for our, a Jedi Knight, it's very easy to give up, but one of the things they give up is marriage. They can still love people, right. but they can't possess them. They can't own them. They can't you know, demand that they do things. And, and they have to be able to accept the fact, one, of their mortality and they're going to die and not worry about it, right. that the loved ones they have, everything they love is going to die and they can't do anything about it. I mean, they can protect them as you would ordinarily protect, you know, get out of the way of that car. You know, somebody charges you with a gun, you knock the gun out. But there is an inevitability to life, which is death. And you have to accept that. The problem with, and this is a mythological idea that goes way back, you know, to Hades, where if you go into once you get power, right. it corrupts you. So if you say, it, Anakin, he fell in love with Padme, which was and became possessive of her, and got jealous and all those things, and then when he found out that she was going to die, he would do anything to stop that from happening even to the point of making a pact with the devil to say, give me the power to save my wife, you know, and I'll do your bidding. Well, he got the power to save his wife, but in the process, 
his wife, he became powerful. And the key to it is he says, okay, I can save you from dying. I can even rule the universe. I can take it. Everybody who gets the power wants to run the universe. They all want to be the emperor. So every single, that's why there's only two Sith. There used to be a lot of them, but they all killed each other off. Because they were all fighting over who got to be the king. So it was always one Sith Lord and one apprentice. And the apprentice was always plotting to get somebody else to join them. Hey, you and me, we get together. We go kill the emperor. that guy, right. Uh, So they're always doing that. So then when Anakin says, well, I'm powerful now, I'm even more powerful than Palpatine, I can take over the universe. I and mean, it'll be the way I want it to be. It would be great. And, of course, Padme says, my God, right. you're not the person I fell in love with. I don't love you anymore. And then he, loses. he lost everything he had. So what I take from that is Jedis can have one-night stands. <laughs> I mean, this is just one that, for me. So Palpatine insinuates that Darth Plagueis uh, taught him the power over uh, life and death. And then he kind of insinuates, you know, too bad that guy got killed in his sleep. Did he kill him in his sleep? Did, did Palpatine in, kill in theory, Plagueis? yeah, he did kill him. He did? Yeah. In his sleep? I thought so. That's, you didn't that's, think I was paying attention. That's paying what apprentices attention. do. Yes. <laughs> So George confirms, I mean, if there was any, you know, ever really any doubt, um, you know, Palpatine is being awfully cagey in that, in that whole sequence in uh, Revenge of the Sith. And he's, he's telling Anakin almost like he's telling him a, you know, a tall tale. You think but, so? I take everything Palpatine says in that scene at face value. Oh, absolutely. I, but I but his delivery, cagey, you know, I think he's really telling the truth he is when telling the saying, truth he is telling the truth what i'm saying is he's 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 doing it in such a way that there could be doubt but if you know palpatine you know there is no doubt well specifically he he is a little vague about the whole concept of manipulating the midi-chlorians to create life but i think just the way he delivered that line leads you to believe that it was the experiments of darth Plagueis. That made Anakin Skywalker exist. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, in McDiarmid plays the scene so well. I mean, it's very, very layered, very layered scene. And, uh, you know, it leaves you with that. I mean, you could take it a, a several different, you know, several ways. Um, but, yeah, I'm with you, Jim, on that. I, I take everything he's saying there, literally. Uh, here's another question. John Stewart asked George about the, the this is the inevitable question that George always gets the impact of, of Star Wars. Star Wars obviously snuck up and grabbed me and threw me across the room, beat me against the wall. And right. it's been a very slow process of me accepting the reality of what's happened. Right. Uh, and it's also hard to get in my head around the enormity of the whole thing. Um, and, you know, I'm philosophical enough to know that maybe it'll go on, maybe it won't, but uh, definitely. We've made a mark in the 20th century, and maybe it'll still be there in the 21st century. Uh, My only hope is the first guy that gets on Mars says, you know, I've wanted to do this ever since I saw Star Wars. That that is great. Stewart says that's great. What's great about that to me is that in that moment you realize that that George has uh, has just accepted the fact, has accepted Star Wars for what it is, 
what it's become to people, uh, what he means to the fans. Uh, and it, that was almost like something you would have – and I here it is, guys. Here's the Star Trek reference of the show. There's always one. That was almost something you would hear from somebody like a Gene Roddenberry. That I hope that you know the first guy that 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 makes it to Mars says, you know, Star Wars was was it was an inspiration. I mean, there, uh, that's I would that that quote really took me aback, um, because that I I always felt that George was in some ways uncomfortable with. Uh, the the legacy of Star Wars and his, you know, he just set out to tell these stories, not to have an entire business industry franchise, you know, uh, built up around it. And uh, he had a lot of other stories to tell and a lot of other things to do. And he's 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 gotten to, you know to do a lot of that. But everything that he does is obviously always overshadowed by this 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 behemoth that is Star Wars. And I think that he's at a place in his life where. Uh, that's okay now, and uh, so so that's cool. And I and for him to recognize that Star Wars can inspire people, and it's not just you know a couple of uh, 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 geeks like us, Jim. You know, in our basements uh, talking about it. I mean, it it the, one of the things that when you that you see when you go to a Star Wars convention is just how many different types of fans there are, and. Uh, uh, and in how Star Wars has helped these folks become the professionals, the you know the people that they are. Forget all the stereotypes and all that. Yeah, sure, there are people. Yeah, of course. You pick out the comic book guy or the stereotype. Yeah, you can find some of them. But but for the most part, I mean, it was it was an amazing crowd of families and uh, professional and successful and happy people. It was it was amazing. So it was very cool to hear that to hear that from George. Yeah, and very much what you said, Jason, about the type of people that were in attendance at Celebration Five. It's it's impossible to really put your finger on the type, as I say in quotes, the type, because it was it was people coming together. It was a mixing pot. It was people from all different occupations and age groups and races and locations all coming together. More than one person told me in the few weeks I've been back from Orlando, hey, I've checked out the pictures on your Facebook from the Star Wars thing you went to. I'm surprised (laughs) to see that everyone pretty much looks normal at this thing. Like everyone's expecting the comic book guy from The Simpsons. Right, right. That's what you talk about when you talk about the stereotype. But Star Wars appeals to a mainstream audience there's something for everyone in star wars and i think that's why you see such a diverse grouping of people coming together at a thing like celebration and your connection with roddenberry is cool too because of course that that first space shuttle was called the enterprise right so george is probably looking at that going hmm the space shuttle (laughs) i want mars All right, for you EU fans here, uh, George finally reveals at Celebration 5 the homeworld of one Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we know pretty much where everybody's from except for Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan? Yeah, where's he from? What's his home planet? Uh, you know, <laughs> don't, don't make it up. Don't, you, don't, just, don't just throw something out there. That was a, 
You gotta, you gotta say where well, he's I, actually. I from. wouldn't do that. This is something right. that was one of the first things that I wrote in the very first script. Really? Yeah. And uh, he comes from the planet Stujan. <laughs> of course, a play on John Stewart's name. And uh, much like he gave Admiral Mahdi the first name of Conan. Thanks to his trip to the Conan O'Brien show. That's right. Now we have Stu John. <laughs> right, right. Maybe and what's Conan, Conan Mahdi might actually be from Stu John as well. <laughs> That's what makes it so funny. I think he's from three Stu John. But he. But <laughs> what, what, what's funny about this is this now is now, this is canon according to Wikipedia. This is yeah. now, it came out, of, and I, you know what? I'm a victim of this because I always say that it's not canon unless George says it. So, you know. <laughs> God forbid George ever, you know, gets a high fever and just starts talking gibberish and nonsense. We're going to be stuck with a lot of really bizarre canon because, according to me, anything he says is the gospel. Speaking of canon, I believe Leland Chi has been putting stuff on his Twitter account about the fact that, yeah, Stu John is canon. I'm trying to find that actual uh, tweet. Yeah, I'm serious. Okay, hey, I got the Leland Chi. Oh, yeah? All right, what's the official word? Stu John? This is uh, this is Leland Chi on Stu John. Keeper of the Holocron, you know. He is the keeper of the Holocron, and he's active on Twitter, and he's an all-around good guy, and he said... The Holocron actually is Twitter. A lot of people don't realize that, but that is what the Holocron is. He actually says on his August 14th tweet at 11.20 a.m., yes, Stu John will be in the Holocron. So there you have it. <laughs> From the man in charge of continuity at Lucasfilm. And he spells Stu John, because I've been wondering about this. There's a few different ways to spell it. But it is based on John Stewart's name. So it's spelled accordingly, S-T-E-W-J-O-N. I've also seen the S-T-U-J-O-N spelling before. But according to the master of the holocron, Leland Chi, on his Twitter, and I I recommend you follow Leland. His uh, Twitter screen name is Holocron Keeper, no spaces. And uh, tell them the force cast sent you there. So um, that's it. It's a done deal. Uh, all right. Now, if as if seeing George on stage with John Stewart wasn't enough, um, and and I, I go back to celebration four with the thirtieth anniversary, and one of my hopes going into C four was that there would be a surprise reunion of sorts. You know, thirtieth anniversary. Of a new hope. I mean, I know I, I sound like a broken record, guys, but I mean, how many pictures of American graffiti reunions do we have to endure as Star Wars fans of that whole cast showing up together? You know, people with nothing else to do, you know, like Ron Howard, you know, and Harrison Ford. You know, he never misses one of those graffiti convention or reunions. <laughs> they but, even get Richard Dreyfus out for those. <laughs> they do. How do they do it? It's amazing. Uh, you know, there's like a classic car show and the American Graffiti cast shows up. But so going into C4, that was sort of one of my hopes. And it, it, it didn't happen. Still, C4 was a great event nonetheless. But C5, they delivered. George Lucas. John Stewart's there. And he brings out Mark Hamill. And Mark was there to talk about the scene when George was discussing all these uh, additional, uh, all the, 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 additional footage that was going to be uh, incorporated into the Blu-ray box set. And the scene that they showed, which showed up on YouTube for a short time, it still might be up there somewhere, uh, was the opening scene of Jedi that was, we, we, 
you know, it was it was in the novelization. Um, I think, Jim, did it make the comic adaptation of Jedi? No, it didn't. It, it, it was made not the, the radio com- drama. The though. radio drama, right. So there was enough uh, reference to this scene that we all kind of just assumed that it that, that it was it was canon that it had happened but i had never seen even so much as a still right. from this i mean they never made any of the tops trading cards the sticker book the making of book any of that stuff the magazine none of that so to see this for the first time and what scene i'm talking about is in return of the jedi we know that luke returns to tatooine and he ends up going to back to Ben's house, uh, Ben's hut, to find what he can on, uh, we're assuming, assembling a new lightsaber, all of that. And we never thought that this, that this scene was actually shot of Luke actually assembling the lightsaber and then placing it inside R2, prepping for the big siege of Jabba's palace. And uh, sure enough, we we got it. I mean, we not only got that scene, but the but a preliminary scene before that of Vader assuming this is right after his arrival on Death Star two, uh, leaving Jerjared and then going off to his meditation chamber where he attempts to reach out through the Force to Luke, and it's just it's a killer scene. So if you find it online, it's so cool that and then they show luke in the cave and he's got the hood up and it's just i I mean talk about goosebumps i mean even dave filoni who's as close to this as you can get with regular meetings with george lucas uh was was just so excited and 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 almost in shock jim wouldn't you say that i mean we were as as fans collectively in shock that not only did this scene exist but we just saw it well i couldn't believe that it was going to happen when it happened even though Mark sounded very sincere when he set it up, yeah, I thought it was just some sort of outtake footage we were going to see that was going to end up being something yeah, wacky. Right. I thought we were going to actually see the clapboard, you know, go down as they, you know, in in the the four three two one. You know, I mean, I mean, a real deleted scene kind of kind of vibe, but it was totally finished. Star Wars Celebration has this funny way of sometimes playing jokes on us, like at Star Wars Celebration 4 when they introduced there was going to be a special video from George Lucas and what it was was a paper bag puppet. So yeah. I thought well <laughs> maybe right. might, they might be playing yeah maybe they right. might be playing another joke on us again. Right, that's right. And um <laughs> instantly I realized the footage was unique. Uh at first I wasn't too sure, but when they showed Vader walking down that hallway I realized now, this is something we have not seen before. And what I think the clip might have been was there have been stills of Vader going to approach the Emperor's throne room and being stopped by Red Royal Guards. And he uses the force to dispatch them and goes right on his way. I thought we were going to see that scene because the hallway looks similar in the stills we've seen. But instead, it goes to a shot of Vader in his meditation chamber. And it's debatable on whether or not this footage was actually filmed for specifically exclusively for return of the jedi yeah there's an outtake that was repurposed from empire strikes back there's 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 all kinds of conspiracy theory kind of stuff going online about whether or not this is legitimately a return of the jedi cutscene. i really don't care i really don't care i don't care whether it was shot for a new hope for phantom menace i don't care what it was shot for it kicks ass it's cool i I, i'm i'm 
kind of annoyed with all of the it's fun to speculate but somebody's like oh please this is not really from Return of the Jedi it's clearly from Empire Strikes Back you could tell you know and it's like who cares who freaking cares do you care at the end of Revenge of the Sith that they actually shot that when they were when they were making Episode Two, A New Hope, because they weren't going to go back to Tunisia? Who cares? It's I still agree. cool. I'm with you, Jason. It, it was it was a fresh new scene from Return of the Jedi, something we never saw before. Um, another bit of uh, speculation I've seen online by the pundits. They say that that was not Mark Hamill. That was a stand-in. Mark disagrees. He actually confirms that it was him. If you listen to our uh, interview with Mark Hamill that we released from C5, you'll hear Mark say that. I thought it was great. The, the story was that Luke put the saber together in Obi-Wan's old hut. Right. He clearly was not in Obi-Wan's hut. He was in a cave. He was in a cave on Tatooine, yeah. And uh, it was really cool to see him fiddle around with the lightsaber. I believe that's the first time we actually saw someone turn a lightsaber on, actually saw their thumb flick the on switch on. I yeah. don't think we've ever had a really no, clear right. shot of that. You're right. No, it was, it was, it was very cool. But, but Mark was asked there on stage uh, about, about that particular scene at the main event. I just saw this clip for the first time on a golf court coming over here on a computer. This is my natural entrance into Jedi, isn't it? Is it the first time you see me? Yeah. Uh, I think everybody has their natural entrance in Star Wars, except for me, because I was at the Power Evaporators. See, I still remember things, even though I'm in the elderly <laughs> recluse phase of my career. <laughs> but when they told me what was involved in this scene, I said, I vaguely remember. And then, of course, when they showed me, I really remembered. It's very short, but it's it's very special. Uh, this is my original entrance into the film Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So um, you know, I've I've looked at this uh, several times, and uh, I'm certainly no expert, but but it it's convincing enough to me. And and I I don't think Mark Hamill's in any place to come out. I mean, come on, guys. This is why would they come out? Why do you come out and make this up? And, and and lie about it and say it, w- it was him when it wasn't him. I mean, it's 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 silliness. It's silliness uh, to even debate it. Quite honestly, but um, what I love is, and I've said before, and the on the shows there at C five is the symmetry between that shot of 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 Luke in the cave on Tatooine, very similar to the shot of Hayden uh, as Anakin uh, on Mustafar, the hood up. You know, one choosing one path, one choosing the other. It's just it's just so cool. It's just so cool. And 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 for me, is, is the folks that have been listening to the show for a long time know Return of the Jedi, like my buddy John Stewart, um, is my favorite. Is my sentimental favorite film of all six. And uh, uh, Luke Skywalker's original entrance and the you know working on the lightsaber there on Tatooine. Just of all the possible original trilogy clips, that would be the one. That would have gotten me most. If, if, if somebody was said, "Well, here's it. We got the sandstorm. We've got Vader choking out royal guards. We got the 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 wampas on M, you know on Hoth. We got all this stuff." That would have been the scene that I would have chosen. So it was very cool. And I think for the for some of the younger fans, it's hard for them to appreciate. For us, the old guys, how amazing it was to see new old Star Wars. 
we'd never seen it before. I mean, it was incredible. We think as Star Wars fans because we we live this stuff, we dissect it all. We, the, the the you know, we've seen stills, we've seen to see something so fresh like that. That was just that was amazing, and to see yeah. it in the presence of George Lucas and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher did also uh, make an appearance on the uh, main event stage. Um, and she asked uh, George about where her deleted scene ended up. Did you ever put the nude scenes back in? <laughs> they have a huge me and Jabba porn scene that he... <laughs> that's, that's what got me into drugs. Uh... <laughs> Ah, Carrie Fisher. (laughs) Such Uh, so much Star Wars, so little time. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Lots of ways that you can play along with us between now and next week. You can send us an email, show at rebelforceradio.com. That is show at rebelforceradio.com, the voicemail line, if you'd like to leave us same, 708-320-1737. That's 708-320-1RFR. Follow us on Twitter at Rebel Force Radio. We're also available as individuals at Jimmy Mac Radio at Jason Swank. And as we said earlier, you've got to be following us on Facebook. I mean it. Jimmy Mac is is the Star Wars equivalent of Matt Drudge. <laughs> He's breaking stories left and right, and it's only happening on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Rebel Force Radio. Really, really great stuff. There's always, always something going on. Great conversations with other like-minded fellow Star Wars fans. It's a safe place. No trolls on our Facebook page. iTunes, you can subscribe and review Rebel Force Radio, and we appreciate both. Please do that. It helps create more visibility for the show, and those reviews, especially those five-star reviews, help. Only rule... Make it good. If you're carrying around an iPhone or an Android device, you'd like to have Rebel Force Radio with you all the time, try Stitcher. It's a great app. But not just Rebel Force Radio, but all your favorite podcasts. You can download it for free today at Stitcher.com. And if you have a mobile browser, you can stream the shows right off of our website, the official website, rebelforceradio.com. Point your browser there. We've got a mobile-optimized version of the site all ready for you. Very cool stuff. And that is at shotglassdigital.com, the official network for Rebel Force Radio. Our episodes of Clone Wars Declassified also available over there. Bondcast for you James Bond fans. Or up to Goldfinger. Snide Remarks Radio, if you're fan of that show and a lot of folks that listen to rebel force radio are uh, jim you and your lovely wife do that show just about each and every week also adh divas 
and Blackhawk talk. Big, big, big times going on in hockey these days. Huge. Huge. I guess they got like championships and stuff. I don't know. You got to listen to Blackhawk talk for all that. More programming coming soon, of course. That's all once again at shotglassdigital.com. We're out of here. We'll see you next time. Love you all so much. For Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember, the Force will be with you always. Always.